Chapter 22 of Boston Blackie by Jack Boyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. For fifteen years. Coming in with the dripping sea fog which San Franciscans love, clinging to him in glistening crystals, Boston Blackie found Mary crouched over the open fire. As she smiled up at him, he saw new and deep emotion in her eyes. "'What's happened, little woman?' he asked solicitously. "'Blackie, I've been over to San Quentin Prison today to visit Alibi Anne, and I found her—' The unfinished sentence ended in a sob. "'Found her how, dear?' "'Happy, absolutely happy, Blackie. Think of it. The fact that she's sacrificed herself for the Gladrag's kid has brought her peace and contentment even beyond the walls of that gloomy old penitentiary. Blackie, that's the truest and best love in the world. Sacrifice is the rock upon which real love is built, said Blackie reverently. And yet, poor Anne. Her only thought still is for him, continued Mary with glistening eyes. Bit and a half Kelly owes Anne some money. What do you suppose her only request was? That I collect it and send it to that worthless young rotter, guessed Blackie. Exactly. Poor, poor Anne. And yet at last she has found happiness, far more perfect happiness than there ever was for her in the little flat on Lyon Street when he was with her. I'll have to do as Anne has asked, but I hate to, said Blackie grudgingly. Kelly lives at the Carteret. I'll see him tonight after the theater. Blackie and Mary spent the evening at the Orpheum Theater. A supper at a downtown restaurant after the performance kept them until just midnight. Then Blackie sent Mary home in a taxi. I may have to wait quite a while for Kelly, he said as they parted. He's a nighthawk, and besides, he and his mob have been planning a stunt for some night this week, unless I'm mistaken. At a quarter past twelve, Blackie entered the dingy South of Market Street lodging house, frequented by crooks not welcomed at Mother McGinn's. The place was dimly lighted and apparently deserted. Blackie climbed the worn stairs to the second floor, and with the freemasonry of his craft, opened mitten-a-half Kelly's door and entered when there was no response to his knock. No one was within. "'He'll surely be back soon.' thought Blackie, settling himself in a chair and picking up a paper. Half an hour passed. Then Blackie heard the street door open and close with a bang. Listening intently, he heard staggering steps slowly climbing the stairs. A groping hand clutched the doorknob. A fumbling key sought the lock. The door opened, and mitten-and-a-half Kelly stood on the threshold. Blackie sprang to his feet with a low cry of alarm. Blood was streaming from Kelly's clothes. His left arm swung helplessly at his side. "'A rumble, and a bad one from your looks, Kelly,' ejaculated Blackie, seizing the wounded man's arm and leading him to a chair. "'What happened?' "'We made a try for the Buffalo Brewery safe,' groaned Kelly. "'We got the box open, and the dough packed up. Then as we were leaving, a harness bull turned the corner. He saw us and drew his gun. We got him.' He's dead, I think, but he got me. The worst of it is, I've let the clear trail of blood all the way here. The others got away, but the coppers will follow me here, sure. I've got to get out quick. 
Blackie slipped the man's coat from his shoulders and slit his shirt with the skill of experience. "'I'll stop this bleeding, and then you'd better go,' he agreed. "'This looks like a bad night's work, Kelly, if the copper is dead.' Deftly he bound the wound. Then he threw off his own coat and slipped the wounded crook's uninjured arm into it. "'That'll keep you until you can get out of town and to a doctor tomorrow,' he said. "'And now, Kelly, it's leaving time for you.' The man pressed Blackie's hand. "'Thanks, pal,' he said. "'I'm going by the alley. They may be at the front door any minute.' As the door closed behind Kelly, Blackie looked at himself in the mirror. His hands, face, and arms were covered with blood. "'Bad business,' he ejaculated. "'This shows the result of using bullets instead of brains. Kelly and his bunch never did have any judgment.' As he turned toward the washstand, he heard the street door open again, and heavy feet tramped up the stairway. "'The coppers!' cried Blackie. He looked about him. Kelly's bloody coat lay on the floor. Blood was everywhere. Blackie glanced toward the window, weighing its possibilities as a means of escape. Then he straightened up, folded his arms, and waited. "'What's the use of running?' he thought. "'They can't tangle me in this business.' There was a knock at the door, plainly from a heavy gun butt. Blackie threw it open. "'Here he is!' cried the leader of the group of policemen that stood outside. "'We've got him, boys!' Blackie, unarmed, was powerless to resist, even had he wished to. A policeman's club crashed against his skull, and he dropped to the floor, unconscious, with a thousand scintillating points of light flashing through his brain. When Boston Blackie recovered consciousness, he was in a hospital with a policeman on guard at either side of his cot. His bandaged head ached horribly. "'Ho, ho, ho, me bucka, you're coming around, eh?' said one of the officers vengefully, as Blackie opened his eyes. "'Better for you, my lad, if your head hadn't been so hard. Now you'll live to be hanged.' McManus, the boy you shot, is dead. I shot nobody. I wasn't even armed, as you know. I wasn't in on this brewery job. If I had been, nobody would have been killed. You've a mighty good idea what happened for a man who wasn't there, persisted the policeman slyly. The chief will be after wanting to see you soon. That afternoon, Blackie was led to the office of Detective Chief Jim Moran. Meanwhile, he had read the papers in which the police exultingly announced the capture of the famous cracksman Boston Blackie after a safe robbery in which a policeman had been shot to death. "'Sub so Blackie, we've got you right at last,' began Moran. "'You'll swing for last night's work.' "'Listen, Chief,' said Blackie, "'I had no more to do with this job than you. I'm going to tell you exactly what happened.' He did, while Moran watched him from beneath gradually contracting brows. "'You dressed this fellow's arm, you say?' Moran interrupted. "'You knew him. Who was he?' Blackie's shoulders straightened. He looked squarely into Moran's eyes. "'I thought you knew me better than to ask me that question, Chief. You'll never find out from me.' Moran's heavy fist banged the table. "'You'll tell!' he cried belligerently. "'You'll tell unless you want to do his time for him. If we don't get him, we'll get you.' The detective paused and lowered his voice while he shook his clenched fist in Blackie's face. "'Even if we have to railroad you.' "'You're capable of it, but it can't be done,' said Blackie quietly. "'The bloody coat with a bullet hole in the shoulder will acquit me. I've no bullet hole in my shoulder. The only wound I have is on my head, where your coppers struck me down while my hands were up. That coat will acquit me, Chief.' "'We'll see.' said Moran with an evil smile. We'll see, Blackie. I believe your story. 
but unless we get the right man, we'll get you. Take your choice. It's made, answered Blackie. Do your worst, you framer. Three months later, Boston Blackie, charged with murder and safe robbery, faced a jury. He was defended by a skillful lawyer. The prosecutor presented his evidence. Policemen told how at the sounds of the shots at the brewery, they had rushed to the scene and found the dying policeman. They told of the trail of blood leading from the spot, and that they followed it to the cataray, and up the stairs to the door of the room in which they had found Blackie, blood spattered and disheveled. His reputation as a safe-cracker was skillfully interjected by the prosecutor. The state rested. Blackie took the stand on his own behalf and told the complete story of the evening. "'Who is this mythical person whose wound you say you dressed?' demanded the prosecutor on cross-examination. "'I decline to answer,' was the reply. The prosecutor turned toward the jury with a triumphant smile. "'That's all. We want facts, not fairy tales.' he said. Mary told how the evening had been spent at the theater, and of the supper that followed it, a supper which ended at midnight, ten minutes after the robbery was committed. The waiter remembered serving them, but was not positive as to the time. Then Blackie's lawyer played his strongest card. He demanded the bloody coat with the bullet hole in the shoulder. The police denied all knowledge of it. They had never seen such a coat, they testified. The prosecutor waved aside the incident as pure fiction. In rebuttal for the state, the policeman who rode in the ambulance with the dying officer was called. He swore that the victim's last words were that Boston Blackie was one of the safe robbers he had surprised. He knew him and recognized him by the flash of the guns. "'Didn't McManus tell you that this defendant is the man who fired the shot that struck him down?' persisted the prosecutor. The witness twisted uneasily in his chair as he glanced toward Blackie, whose black eyes were fixed on him as though they would wring the truth from his perjured lips. The policeman was willing to lie to send his man to prison, but his conscience rebelled at swearing away his life. He didn't say who fired the shots. He only said he saw this man, Boston Blackie, in the bunch. "'That's all,' snapped the prosecutor disgustedly. The jury, impressed by the straightforward, sincerely told story of Mary and Blackie himself, refused to convict him of murder, but found him guilty of safe robbery. This Boston Blackie's story sounded like the truth, the foreman said to his wife when he was eating his dinner that night. Those policemen might have lied. I don't know. But anyway, the man is a safecracker. And even if he wasn't guilty of this, he is guilty of other robberies. So we compromised and acquitted him of murder, but sent him across for robbery. The judge roasted us for it, too. Boston Blackie was sentenced to fifteen years in San Gregorio. It's hard, Mary, but it can't be helped, he said tenderly as his wife clung to him on the morning he was leaving her for fifteen long years of a living death. I'm taking a clear conscience with me, anyway. Some day I'll be back, and then... Their tears dropped together as Mary sobbed hysterically on his breast. And so the police at last rid themselves of Boston Blackie, first among cracksmen. End of Chapter 22